Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Everyone, welcome to the Doctors Are Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, talk about the art and the science of the things that we're putting on our feet. Today, I am incredibly honored to have Dr. Rich Willie on the podcast, who is has an incredible uh, resume and CV that I'm going to try to keep as short as possible, somebody that I've certainly looked up to in the research world, and has done quite a bit, not only on runners, but on bone stress injuries, has, I got to give you credit, because the uh, uh, patellofemoral clinical practice guidelines are something that I hold near and dear to my heart that my students at West Coast will know I go over extensively in our their X course, but Thank you for all that. He's an associate professor at the University of Montana, Missoula in the Department of Physical Therapy. He has a bachelor in sports science from Ohio University, uh, a master's in physical therapy from Ohio University as well, and then did his PhD on patellofemoral pain syndrome with Irene Davis at University of Delaware. Um, He's, again, studied on a variety of topics, particularly knee, um, but also on wearables, done very cool stuff with the military, um, master's runners. Today, what we're going to try to do is dive into some stuff on ultra marathoners and bone stress injuries. It's not to kind of give this away. He's got some research coming up, trying to see what's happening to these athletes, especially among the elite. And we'll try to take some of those lessons, see if we can distill them down to the rest of us and go, what can we learn? Not just about what's happening to our bodies during this event, but what do we need to think about long term? Because most of us want to keep doing this. So what do we need to start thinking about? So, Rich, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Did I get everything? Oh, yeah, thanks. That's perfect. Yeah, they, they very, yes, it's, uh, thanks for the really, very nice introduction. It's very nice to be here. I'm excited to be here. So, thanks. Yeah, we appreciate having you on. So, I have to say I'm particularly interested in this area because my wife, I have to give her a shout out. She, as of this, is seven weeks postpartum and is now back to running three miles a day, which I don't know is totally advised, but she's a professional runner and she kind of does what she wants, which is when you said elite runners can be a little bit of their own population, this is where that's definitely true. But again, you mentioned this earlier, there's very little research in this area. Like I th- I probably spent in the last hour reviewing a bunch of the stuff I have previously. And I think I've gone through most of everything, which blows my mind that more people wouldn't have studied this. Is there any particular reason you think people haven't looked into this as much? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. So, um, you're right. It hasn't really been studied a whole lot. Um, ultra running is, is really big in Europe, uh, you know, particularly like around Chamonix and, and so forth. So there's a, there are a lot of um, type, like performance type research that's being done there, like looking at the physiology of ultra running. And that work is great. And that, that's typically how, how it goes is, you know, and that's how it was with, with running. Like, I think this is the 100 year anniversary of the VO2 max test this year, which is kind of cool. Um, and people didn't really start looking at running injuries until sometime after that. And so I think that what you're seeing now is you're starting to see this kind of, kind of trailing, uh, part looking at, well, okay, well, what about the injuries that ultra runners get? And, you know, I think that there, there have been some studies that have looked at that. And I, you know, I think that it's important probably to do an update on that because I think who is competing in ultras has changed quite a bit in the last 20 to 30 years. So, when you think about like 
20 years ago, a lot of ultra marathoners were maybe they came to ultra running from other sports. And so they came to it late in, late in life. I think a lot of ultra runners tended to be masters runners. Um, and so as we know, masters runners tend to get different types of injuries than younger runners. Anyway, they tend to get more soft tissue injuries. But now what we're starting to see is particularly in elite runners, we're starting to see a lot of runners that are post-collegiate. So they ran somewhere from a collegiate level, you know, perhaps division one. Um, they've transitioned over to ultra running. And so now we've got a new breed of ultra runner who is running very fast, um, who has, has the, this really excellent track background, but they're running, they're running very, very quickly in both their training runs, but also in their, in these races, they also have the injury history that collegiate runners have as well. We know that that's the number one uh, risk factor if you're going to get an injury in the future is if you've had that injury in the past. So, um, so they're, they're bringing that to the sport. Um, and they're running much faster too. So we see that, for instance, Western states, uh, in the last 20 years, the finishing time has come down two hours. So we know that when you run faster, uh, bone uh, is more susceptible to very fast running. And so I think that's a big reason why we're starting to see more and more bone stress injuries in the elite ultramarathoner. And that's especially challenging because there's interesting research. Obviously, this group is very dedicated and you've got to do a lot of miles. There's some very interesting uh, qualitative studies that have asked like, hey, if you knew that ultra running was bad for you, would you stop? And I think like 78% said, absolutely not. I would keep doing this. And it's not to say it's not saying it's bad. It says people are going to keep doing this and they're going to keep doing it in large numbers. We are in do what's the term I'm looking for in high volume. A lot of people are going to keep doing it and they're going to keep continue doing it almost no matter what. So the question is, how do we keep people healthy, which is our subjective question of the day. So wherever you're listening to this, let us know, do you participate in ultra marathons? And if you do, what do you do personally? What extra things do you do to keep yourself healthy? And I feel like from a lot of the patients that I've treated, the answer is nothing but run, <laughs> which has been the most common thing. Not that I'm judging because I know a lot of people, and we talk about this all the time, some of the things you might want to consider doing, especially when it comes to strength training, when it comes to other things. But what I'm especially hoping to get out of this conversation is being able to help both clinicians and runners from this conversation understand the why do we talk about that, especially in ultramarathoning. Because I think some of the stereotypes, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm going the wrong way, is that you know ultra you run all the time, so your bone density must be absolutely solid, right? It you you know are you there's going to be completely different injuries from say if you're a road runner, which might be true, might not, as you kind of mentioned, and then also you can eat whatever you want. Health is a different thing. You are the ultimate in health, and I think that's my big question starting out is what does health even mean in ultra marathoning to you when you talk about when we we just get into this topic. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, what draws people to ultra running, I think, is is probably, you know, a good place to start. And I think, you know, a lot of people uh, maybe came from a, a road running background and they kind of gravitated towards trail running because perhaps they were burned out on training for marathons or half marathons. And they really have come to the kind of unstructured nature of ultra marathons. You know, there's no necessarily standard distance. I think, you know, a lot of times we hear about 100Ks or 100 milers. Um, but I think too, like that, that unstructured environment, while it can be like, what's a little bit of learning, it can also be part of the problem too. Like, you know, so if you, you know, contrast this with basketball, for instance, you know, a basketball game is going to be a set length of time. Um, ultra marathoning can be, you know, you can, you can train as much as you want, you know, for as long as you're not getting injured. 
And when you when you think about there's you can look up online, you can find like a online training plan for a marathon or for 5k and they they team they they tend to be pretty tame, but for ultra marathons you you just can't find that. And so a lot of ultra marathon training tends to be you know, let's go spend a lot of time in the hills on the weekends, particularly perhaps doing back-to-back days that are, that are pretty big. Um, and, uh, and I think that kind of that best practices on, on how to structure your week and how to structure your season and season after season when, so you're coming to your, your best performance and your best overall health. You know, I don't, I don't think that that work has been done. And I think that part of that too, is just that, you know, the, the, just the nature of ultra runners tends to, I don't know, maybe avoid that kind of structure. And so um, I think that there's a lot of benefits to that, but I think that there are some things for ultra runners to keep in mind as well when they're, when they're training like that so that they can maintain their overall musculoskeletal health along the way. So it sounds like there's some risks. Again, health kind of gets thrown. You're like, hey, I can, you know, the classic things I've heard is I can just go run how much ever I want. I have to worry, don't worry about it. I can eat whatever I want. I can just, you know, classic weekend warrior. Again, a lot of these individuals frequently are masters runners they've kind of been through their career or we're now seeing this new group that's much younger that can focus on this all the time the challenges for those different groups how they structure changes can be different but a lot of the way classically people do it is you'll have these massive workload spikes on the weekend and we know that kind of the musculoskeletal system doesn't always do as well with that if you're not kind of ready for that as opposed to kind of the more consistent workload throughout the week, but it's understandable since most people that are doing this, not the elites maybe, but most people are working during the week and the only have time they have to get that long training running comes in the in the weekend. So yeah, it kind of goes against the norm of what we might suggest as opposed to marathoning. Yeah, you'll frequently have that long run, but you, there is some level of consistency throughout the week versus the, yeah. Go for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I think the other part of it too is that when you run on a trail, you're running much slower, and so one mile right. on the trail is going to take longer than one mile on the road. And I don't know if necessarily if trail runners make that do that calculus in their head. And there also tends to be a lot more elevation gain and loss. And so, um, if you talk to serious ultra runners, not only will they be tracking tracking their weekly mileage or weekly running volume, they'll also be tracking their their weekly vertical revert, you know, so how much vertical yeah. gain and loss that they're also experiencing. And so, um, I don't know, you know, I live in Missoula, Montana, and I, I think that it's probably safe to say that Missoula is a training base for a lot of elite ultra runners. And so, um, one of the things that is pretty typical is I'll hear some of the elite ultra runners that I, that I treat, they come in and they're talking about doing 10, 20, maybe even 30,000 feet of vertical in a week, which is which is insane. I mean, that's like just so much volume at 30,000 feet. I mean, that's going up and down Mount Everest. And, um, so this is the training loads are quite a bit different. Um, you know, we see, you know, we're talking about overall bone health and, and, you know, running in and of itself, even though there is some impact involved, um, running is not a very bone stimulating activity. And in fact, when we, when we look at runners, they tend not to have very good bone health. Um, and um, they might have regionally higher bone density in certain areas, um, but they, they tend towards lower bone density, particularly more proximally. So if you look at the, the lumbar spine, the pelvis, the femoral neck, they tend to have lower bone densities there when you're, they're looking at like age match peers who are not, who are not running. Just for our, our, some of our, some of our listeners are going to know this, some of them are not. What's the difference between bone density and bone health? I think this is a key point because a lot of runners will assume, oh, I must have great bone density because I run all the time when that doesn't necessarily mean 
that's not necessarily true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, you know, I think bone density is just one part of, of, of bone health. You know, when we look at bone health, we're also talking about bone mass as well. So, um, and, you know, you're, when we run, uh, or when we, actually, like anytime, we're always turning bone over. So we're always slowly breaking bone down and we're replacing it with, with, um, with new bone. And if you're doing, if you're like different parts of your, of your lifespan, you might be laying down more bone than you're breaking down. So when you're a young athlete, for instance, like in your, your early teens, you're going to be laying down more bone mass. And so you're kind of accruing bone mass during your teenage years. And that's kind of when we build up most of our bone mass. And then, um, as we get older, um, it's thought that we lose a lot. We kind of slowly lose our bone mass as we get older. And so, um, it used to be thought that you couldn't, like once you got to be like 25 or 30 years of age, it was kind of all downhill from there when it came to bone mass and you just kind of slowly lost it. But some really neat new work coming out of Australia, looking at older individuals who have osteoporosis or osteopenia. And they're showing that you can reverse that as you get older. Um, now, granted, you can, you can make some changes there. They're not massive changes, but you can at least start to add some bone mass later on in life, provided that the exercise is right, your overall health is, is good, and you're eating enough calories to support your bone physiology so you can lay down new bone. And when you look at, when you look at running, um, you basically can get uh, a bone stress injury for two different reasons. One is you can do a lot of fast running. And bone is very susceptible to, uh, to, to the accrual of bone micro damage when you run very fast. And so um, it's not like when you, when you run 10% faster, it's not that the bone damage that you accrue is 10% more. It's actually, there's an actually an, 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 uh, there's an exponential effect that's occurring and that, that exponent is about six. So a factor of six. So if you increase your load per step by running maybe 10% faster, you're actually reducing the number of steps that you can take before you start accruing mic- bone micro damage by a factor of six. So it really goes up exponentially. So that's why fast running can be very, you don't want to do too much fast running because fast running can increase your risk of developing a bone stress injury. So that's bone damage. The other side of the spectrum is running is also very energy intensive. So if you're running a lot, so a lot of volume, you're going to be burning a lot of calories. And if you're not replacing those calories, um, both from a caloric standpoint, but also consuming enough macronutrients and micronutrients, your body is going to start turning inward and pulling those macronutrients and micronutrients from your bones, for instance, to start nourishing your body. And so as a result, you start to lose bone mass over time. And so it's really important that if you're burning a certain number of calories that you're replacing those calories um, with uh, appropriate amount of energy consumption, but you're also choosing the right kind of calories to consume as well. And and, um, I'm not a registered dietitian, but we can kind of talk a little bit about that um, as we're going along. But, um, you know, lately there's been, I'd say over the last decade, I think we're starting to get a much better idea of this idea that bone injuries is not just because of the way we run. It has much more to do with our overall bone health and our physiology and our physiology's ability to to basically support our musculoskeletal system and, re- and repair some of the damage that we're accruing when we go out for just a regular training run. So it sounds like there's multiple factors here. It's like, okay, so you are go- you are choosing activity that doesn't it, – it, it may help to some degree with bone density in a specific area, not your entire body. But you're also doing some risky things is you're doing something with a very high caloric expenditure – 
which is also a risk factor for bone turnover and not like or like kind of reabsorption. So it's not being replaced. It's there's going to weak. It might weaken somewhere that's probably not the right term. You have people doing ultra marathons, which typically is extremely high calorically. It only really loads the lower extremity. It's not like these individuals are stopping going, oh, I need to make sure that I load my upper extremity or do some stuff for my lumbar spine. No, you're just running. It's repeated load through the lower extremity the entire time. Plus the high caloric amount that if you're out there for like five, six hours, you really cannot consume enough calories to compensate for that. So you have some kind of risk factors starting to accumulate here. Combined with you have increased loads and some injury risks that are you can't kind of get out of the way, right? So a lot of, as you mentioned earlier, because masters runners typically tended to be the more common group here, there may have been more soft tissue type injuries, which actually was seen in the past as a reviewing this more common previously was like ankle dorsiflexion, irritation, just what I assume from like heel strikers and you just overwork all those extensors and antib makes sense. But as some of the younger athletes have come in, you have now seen a much higher rate of bone stress injuries, knee stuff has started to shift as we've kind of mentioned beforehand. So it sounds like a perfect storm and the perfect storm being people aren't eating well enough. I can guarantee if the, a lot of these individuals, be it young ones who a probably don't have a great sleep schedule to begin with, because we got it, you know, sleep is something is that's really important for recovery. Your older individuals that probably aren't sleeping well throughout the week because they work full time and then they just do these peak loads during the weekend, combined with probably not the best nutrition because runners are whether they might not be eating enough or not be eating as well to replace or adequately get in micro macronutrients. It's not saying this is bad, but it sounds like this is a bit of a perfect storm here and like an untapped like, well, this makes sense, but we still need to study it. Correct? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're hitting all the main points and that's that like, it's just so energy intensive. And I think you said it really well earlier that like, so if you're going out for a four or five hour run, you know, uh, you're, there's no way you can consume that number of calories to replace that. Like when you're on your feet. And so as a result, you're coming out of that run with an energy deficient state and so it's going to maybe perhaps take you a couple of days to get back to even keel. And so if you're also actively trying to lose weight along the way, you're just going to perpetuate that and you get yourself stuck in this low energy availability state. And that's when you start losing bone mass. And we see that that occurs. It doesn't take a lot of time to do that. It can actually occur over just a single over a single week. If you get yourself in a state of low energy availability, um, well, you're going to start losing bone mass. And we see that it's very, it's kind of silent. You don't necessarily know that that's happening, but uh, a good rule of thumb is that if you're losing body mass, you're typically not just losing body fat. You're also losing uh, body mass somewhere else too. And that can be muscle, can also be bone um, as well. And so it's really important to be thinking, thinking a lot about that. And there's some, some, you know, a couple of really cool studies that have come out in the last couple of years that have looked at like how ultra runners look at running and their overall mental health picture. And, and so we see that like, you know, up to between 32 and 62% of ultra runners um, have the signs and symptoms of disordered eating or some sort of, uh, they've actually been diagnosed with some form of an, of an eating disorder. Um, we know that almost 20% of ultra runners um, have been diagnosed or show the signs and symptoms of exercise addiction. And um, a really great paper came out of Western States from two years ago. And they found that 50% of the males and females that were running uh, Western States are actively trying to lose weight. So if you're 
running that much and you're also doing some sort of caloric restriction, that's a real recipe for poor bone health. Um, and you're going to start start to basically start losing this bone mass. And so when, when we look at uh, that study from Western States from a couple years ago, we see that you know, about 30% of males have low bone density. So that's a pretty high rate. So one out of three males who ran Western States two years ago uh, are osteopenic or perhaps even in the osteoporotic uh, range. Females, which was a little bit surprising, was a little bit lower. That was about 16% for females for the same, for the same measures of, of, of bone density. But the other thing, too, we see is that um, over one out of three um, females have had a bone stress injury in the past. And that's, that's actually really concerning because when we look at the number one risk factor for if you're going to have a bone stress injury in the future is if you've had one in the past. And if you've had one in the past, you have a 600% increased risk of having a subsequent one. And there's, there's some really important reasons for that. But the number one reason is, is that those risk factors that set you up for that first one are likely unresolved. And those, so since those risk factors are still present, um, you're going to probably get another bone stress injury in the future. And that could be anywhere else in your body. So if you've had a tibial bone stress injury in the past, that doesn't necessarily mean that your next bone stress injury is going to be in your other tibia. It might be somewhere else, your sacrum or your femoral neck or a metatarsal. So um, if you've had a bone stress injury in the past, I think it's important not to just, pat, just to pass it off as just like a random occurrence. You probably should you know, think long and hard about what led to that bone stress injury and make sure that you're not just waiting for that bone stress injury to heal so you can get back to running as quickly as possible. Um, but take some time and, you know, and particularly if it's one of these what we consider to be high risk bone stress injuries. So that would be a bone stress injury of the sacrum, um, bone, stress, bone stress injury of the femoral neck, uh, navicular, uh, anterior tibia. If you've had one of those, it's, it's really important for you to meet uh, with a registered dietitian, so you can make sure that you're meeting the energy and the macronutrient and micronutrient demands of 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 your sport. Yeah, I can see this as being as a huge issue, and it's interesting that like food is probably one of the more interesting things to me in ultra marathoning. So when my wife was doing the U.S. 100K Championship, that was all we did is it was just learning how to eat. I did not run that with her; I just joined her for all her training ones, and I. I have to say that I kind of maxed out when she's like, can you do a 30 mile run with me? And I'm like, I think this is the limit of what I'm willing to do, even though I love you. Like I even, <laughs> I like running. I don't know if I like running that much. So learning to eat on the run was really interesting because you have to go. And it's for us, especially for her as a pro, it was not a, an option of, oh, I just try not to eat. It was, I have to eat or you're going to stop. You're going to, you're not going to finish, but it's challenging again to kind of some of the stereotypes, and I apologize for anybody that gets offended with this, is some of the stereotypes about runners and people having, like you said, some of the disordered eating. You're, if you have disordered eating, you're ha- you need to get help because you're having a problem with one of the most important parts of performance for endurance sport is food. If you do not have enough, you're not going to make it to the finish line. And if you don't continue to fuel, you're, the evidence is clear. Your body's going to break down, be it now or later. And this, it's not just about, oh, eating. It's this is you have to eat for performance. Like this is about, about survival. And for those that have done ultras, no, you do get in that survival mode. But there's another level that I think long term we might not be thinking about. And this this talk is not to demonize ultra marathoning and say you shouldn't be doing it, but it's to go. I think there's a better way for people to be able to approaching this, especially with the research coming out saying, yeah, one in three people is having low like basically signs of poor bone health, which you would not expect in people running a hundred. 150 miles a week, but I guess we can say the opposite, that we are missing some things. And if these athletes can want to continue to do this, there might need to be some changes. 
correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there are a lot of ways to look at statistics. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's easy. And, and I, as a researcher, I'm, I'm trying to justify studies. And so I might say, well, you know, one out of three ultra runners have poor bone health and they've got low bone density. But I, I also think it's important to point out that two out of three ultra runners have normal bone health. And so it's That's very fair. possible to do the sport and it's actually quite possible to do the sport in a very healthy manner. Um, and I think we also need to be thinking a lot about how those other individuals are doing this and doing so in a very healthy and safe manner. Um, and I, you know, I think that, uh, at the same time though, I think we really need to be thinking a lot about those one out of three because, uh, you know, those, those people are going to have probably some lifelong, uh, bone health issues, um, that are going to, it's going to extend long beyond, just their their inability to perhaps run 100 miles without getting some sort of injury in the training process leading up to that event. So, yeah, I, I do think that there's there's probably a lot more that, that we can learn there. We don't we don't necessarily um, know exactly why, but I, I don't know. I can tell you in my own clinical practice that this is a group that I end up treating a lot. I see a lot of ultra runners. I see a lot of elite uh, ultra runners. Um, and a lot of them are dealing with bone stress injuries. And for me, it's really led me to kind of ask the question, like, why, why are we starting to see more of these? And, you know, I think part of that too, is I think that we're starting to see more, um, more, more fad diets and more dietary restrictions. And, and, and I think too, I think the, the average person probably just, you know, I think under fueling is probably unintentional in a good number of people. And we see that in about 50% of people who have some low energy availability, uh, status. And so, so I think it's just, it's just really hard to understand like how many calories you you truly are burning when you're out running. And I think too, it, it's easy when we start thinking a lot about, well, you know, I'm going to start going out and doing ultra running and I'm going to go out and it's going to not be on the roads and it's going to be, you know, running the hills. And so I'm going to maybe start looking at some different diets and, and, uh, so like one of the more popular ones that I run into is either like an athlete who is, um, uh, who's like on a, a low carb diet, so a high fat diet. And they may be under the, the idea that, Hey, I'm running very slow. And so I'm burning a lot of fat. And because I need to be consuming uh, less carbohydrates, I don't need to be eating as many carbohydrates, but bone is actually very, is a very carb intensive structure. Um, and so if you've ever tried to um, do like inter, like like intermittent fasting, or you put yourself on a, like some sort of low carb diet. You know that you get a little bit of like a, this brain fuzz, you know, where you can't concentrate um, quite as well. And the big reason for that is that your brain primarily operates off glucose, and so you can feel that right away. Well, your bones also primarily also operate off glucose. So they are a very carb intensive you know structure, and so if you're not consuming enough carbohydrates, one of the things is some really neat work out of Australia looking at race walkers who they put them on these, these, these high fat diets, low carb diets. Um, and they found that almost immediately they start shedding more bone. And it's not that you, so it's not like when you, when you start restricting the amount of calories you're eating, it's not, or you're, or, or you're reducing the amount of carbohydrates you're eating. It's not that you are not laying down new bone, which you're not. But the other thing too is that the amount that you of your bone that you're breaking down actually accelerates. So when you when you took when you take a look at two athletes, one athlete is consuming enough calories and they're eating a very high carbohydrate diet. And then you look at another athlete who is perhaps restricting the amount of carbohydrates that they're eating and perhaps in a low energy uh, state, what we see is that the athlete who has adequate calories is breaking down some bone and then they're going to lay down new bone. 
and all that stuff is great. But the other athlete, they're actually breaking down bone at a higher rate. And because, and the reason for that is because they're trying to clear out some of that micro damage that's naturally occurring. But then because they're not consuming enough nutrients, they're also essentially mining their own bones for those nutrients. And so you're breaking down, you're basically consuming yourself. Um, and then they're not also then having that, that subsequent um, a replacement of new bone, that bone formation that's occurring too. So they're actually losing bone at, an, at this accelerated rate um, and they're not replacing that bone um, either. And those, those studies out of Australia are really fascinating because they had... They, um, they took a group of these elite race walkers and they divided them into three different groups. One group had a high carbohydrate, high calorie diet. They had another group who had a high calorie but high fat diet and they restricted the amount of carbohydrates they had. And then they had a third group who was on a caloric deficient diet but still was on a high carbohydrate diet. And what they found was that the high calorie low carb group lost more bone than the low energy availability group who had a high carbohydrate diet. So that tells you that carbs are, are, are very important. They're actually even more important than consuming enough calories, uh, which is still really important, of course, but it seems like the carbohydrate part is, is really very, very important. So if you're an ultra runner, it's really important that you're not looking to go onto a high, uh, or this high fat diet, low carb diet, um, that you're not running in a fasted state because we know that that also kind of accelerates bone breakdown. And it, you know, again, it used to be thought that like we were like, oh, well, people get bone stress injuries because they don't have the right running biomechanics. They're not running in the right shoes. But more and more now we're, we're beginning to realize that this is much more of a, a, an athlete's physiology is not able to support the sport that they're doing. And as a result, they're starting to get tissue breakdown. In this case, we're talking about bone breakdown. So it's not surprising, again, we hear that it's never one factor of, no, it's not only your footwear, it's not only your foot strike or your running form, it's all these factors together, but especially looking at your physiology going, let's go back to the basics. So for all the students out there, when we tell you, get your foundations first, this is what we're talking about, this is a great example of, do you are you consuming enough calories just to support the training that you're doing, does the training that you're doing match your caloric expenditure enough that it's things are balanced out and your body can recover from what you're asking of it? And I think you hit on this earlier where I don't know if people, not that it's bad. I don't know if people know how much load is going through the body when they do ultras, right? I think a lot of people, the, the master's runners that I work with right now, when I'm, some of them that are coming in for Achilles stuff that I'm testing, a lot of them are ultra marathoners and think, oh, my body feels so much better than it did when I was doing road marathons. Now I'm doing like marathons on the trail. I feel better. It must be less load. And I think the answer is, well, no, it might be different. It might be coming at different angles given where there's more variety. But it's not necessarily less, and it's not that, again, if you use only the mile metric, miles take much longer on the on the trail, and that may not be the best metric. So, again, might contribute to people being confused of how much do they really need, and are they eating and training enough that they can recover? And it sounds like for some portion of the population, there's a mismatch there, but not all of them because you mentioned we have to be positive a little bit because there is some research suggesting that, yes – in some ultra marathoners, there's a fairly high level of bone turnover initially, but if they're adequately recovering and training and eating, there's actually bone density can actually and health can actually improve over time if they do this correctly. But how to do that correctly is, I think, where the 
kind of key is. Am I am I on the right track with that? Yeah, um, I mean, I think so. I, I you know, I think what I would say is, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if anybody's ever shown that bone health uh, really improves a lot by running more. Got it. I think it probably does a pretty good job of maintaining it. Um, right. I think that... Or adapting to it. Yeah, adapting right. to it. Yeah, yeah, there's some adaptation that's occurring. So, um, and... But as far as like building building new bone, um, that part, I think we don't we don't really know that very well. So there was a really nice study. Well, first off, we, we know that people who tend to do more impact type sports... That, that 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 seems to be very protective, and so particularly if you do it between the ages of nine and fourteen years of age. So if you played soccer, if you played tennis and basketball, those are kind of the big sports that people have studied a lot. Um, we see that even when you get to college, if you're a Division One collegiate athlete and you're running track and running cross country, you have a four hundred percent lower risk of sustaining some sort of stress fracture when you're in college. And what's really cool is that they've followed some of these soccer players and basketball players and tennis players later on into life. And then when you get into your 40s and 50s, you have like a 60% reduction, uh, a reduced risk in having any sort of fracture from a fall or what have you. So let's say you've, you're no longer participating in sports when you're in your 50s or whatever, that your, your likelihood of sustaining some sort of fracture comes down considerably. Because you played soccer for two to three years in between the ages of nine and fourteen, which is which is really really cool, and that is a really important statistic, I think, from a public health standpoint. And one of the big reasons why that's really important, I think, too, is when you look at you know our society today, is that's when athletes start to drop out of sports um, or they start to specialize more. And so we know too that when you when you do the same sport year round, one of the things that happens is that your bones start to become very numb to that type of loading and you you don't adapt quite as well. So if you're running year round, whether you're a high school athlete or you're a middle age athlete, um, your, your bones are like, okay, I, I get it. You're running a lot and we're, we're, you're doing this sort of load. And it's very repetitive. Um, and as a result, the bone kind of stops to adapt over time. And so it's really important too to, to work into your year some periods of, of deloading where, you know, you have, you're dividing your year up into several different basically seasons and, um, you, you back off a little bit and perhaps, and perhaps do some, do some other sports. Um, and, or even just take it kind of easy, you know, just let yourself recharge and, and rebuild for a little bit, just maybe a couple weeks that allows your bones to kind of resensitize to load. Um, and then it'll have a better chance of, of actually responding and, and building back up, um, when you start running again. Um, the, the other thing that can be really important too is, um, let's say soccer and basketball are just not your jam and you're, you know, like if you're like me, you're more likely to get hurt playing basketball than if you're going for a walk or something like that. And so you decide to go to the gym and start doing some weightlifting or, or jumping or plyometric activities, which is what you really should be doing. You really should be mixing things up. And the, the whole goal here is to do some sort of activity that is, um, essentially building your bones up for stronger than what you actually need them to be. So when we look at who has really strong bones, uh, we know that soccer players have really strong bones. We know basketball players have really strong bones as well as tennis players. And so you essentially want to have the bones of a basketball player as an ultra runner. And the best way to do that is to do some sort of jumping uh, type sport or jumping activity. So plyometrics can be really helpful. Um, but one of the things that's really important is that is when you do those jumping activities matters a lot. And so, you know, again, the best time to do that is when you're between the ages of 9 and 14. 
okay, and you're probably listening, you're like, okay, that's great, but I'm 35 now. I'm that's that's long past. Um, you can still do some jumping activities and and working that into your your week is going to be a really important thing to do. And 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 jumping seems to be a great way to add some really good bone stimulus. Um, and you don't have to do very many repetitions. And in fact, again, you're like the more, you, the more reps you do, your bone becomes less and less responsive to it. And so you really only, only need to do about 45 jumps. So let's say you do three sets of 15 drop jumps off of a box. Um, that's going to, your bones are going to respond really well to that. Um, and bones tend to respond to loading that is done very, very fast and where the bone kind of gets stretched and bent and twisted, and it's going to respond to that. Tendon is kind of the opposite. Tendon, if you've ever had some sort of tendinopathy, you know that your therapist puts you on some sort of lifting program, or at least hopefully puts you on a lifting program where you were doing some heavy, slow resistance training, where you're lifting something very heavy, and you were doing like maybe three seconds on the concentric or the raising phase and three seconds on your lowering phase. Bone is exactly the opposite of that. Bone still likes really high loads, but it likes to be loaded very, very quickly. And so that's why the jumping part um, is, 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 is super helpful to do. Um, but what you want to do is think about doing that type of jumping or, or loading type activity before you go for the run. And you want to do it before the run, not after. And the reason for that is that if you wait until after the run, your bone has desensitized and it's not going to respond to that load as much. You're still going to break down bone because you're, you're, you're going to be accruing some sort of bone micro damage. But the osteoblasts, which lay down new bone, are not going to respond to it. So it's really important to do this three times per week before your runs or more like even better is to do it like when you're totally fresh, perhaps first thing in the morning and then maybe do your run later on and then, um, I don't know, sometime in the afternoon, it's gonna be the best way to do that. So, um, but you know, and I think too, the, when you're thinking about uh, like targeting different parts of your body, you can do that. So jumps are going to be really good for your foot and ankle and for your tibia, for your lumbar spine. Um, by the time that kind of that, that force from hitting the ground works its way up to your lumbar spine. It's already been kind of dampened by your foot and ankle and your knee. And so you're just not going to get that much load on your lumbar spine. So one of the best exercises you can do is some sort of, of heavy squat activity. So go to the gym, get into a squat rack, do your lifting with both legs. And the reason why you want to lift with both legs is because you're going to be able to put more weight on your back. And by doing that, you're going to be using more muscles and the muscles are going to pull on your bones more and you're going to get a better stimulus uh, to your lumbar spine and your pelvis and your sacrum, which is a very common spot for getting bone stress injuries in ultra runners. And uh, yeah, right. So like runners, they really like doing things in their arm like This is a, a single leg activity. So I'm going to do a lot of unilateral squats or one-legged squats. But really, the more weight you can lift, the better. And when it comes to bone health, that's always the answer to the question is, how can I lift more weight? And how can I lift more weight faster? And that's going to give you a much more stimulating uh, activity when it comes to overall bone health. So those would be the kind of the ways that I would do this, is, is doing some sort of jumping activity three times per week, um, do some, some squats with some heavy weight. And the best way to do that squat is to lower down slowly and then explode upward. So lift, lift that weight as quickly as you can. And again, by doing that, you're going to get the greatest amount of strain on the bone and the bone is going to then respond and hopefully lay down new bone. And there's been some really great work looking at female athletes uh, in their, when they're in their 20s and having them do these very... And they only had them do like just fast squats 
And just by doing that, they're seeing three to five to 7% increases in overall bone density, particularly in the lumbar spine and also femoral neck. So that's great. So I, I, so what I'm hearing, and I'm going to go in a slightly different direction with this, is I think is it's kind of the stereotype we as PTs were always telling runners, that, hey, you got to do some kind of strength work. You got to do something. And I'm hoping that this gives our listeners a little bit better background to go, well, this is why. This is why you have to do something a little bit different. If you can run, but there's some things you need to do to support your running, A, heavier lifting. The stimulus is so different because if you can do something fast or heavy, that's the kind of stimulus that maintains better bone health versus, like you said, I I don't – that analogy is great. It's going to stick with me forever is that when you have a repeated stimulus, your bone gets numb to it and if anything, just stops responding, which is pretty classic for your body. If you do something enough times, a lot of times – there's a lot of tissues that go, I'm, I, I don't need to re- – I can't respond to this anymore. In fact, might start going the opposite way. So it doesn't matter if you're running 100 miles or one. You need to be working on strength strength training of some kind, be it plyometrics, high level load. And what's funny is, and I have to give Rich, I don't know, you don't know this, but your paper with Max, by the way, on the physiology and changes of the masses runner, that inspired my dissertation uh, that I'm working on right now. So all the stuff on the calf and Achilles, I didn't tell, I didn't tell Rich this beforehand. Um, But it's funny that what I'm seeing in masters runners actually mimics this, but for different reasons is that as Masters runners, which again is a large population for ultramarathon, as we get older, we start losing muscle mass, we start losing more strength than we lose muscle mass, and then we start losing more power than we lose strength. So it's interesting that what you're saying for bone is is mirroring some of the changes that we see that runners don't do a good job of maintaining muscle mass, strength, or power. And so not just from a bone standpoint, but from a musculoskeletal standpoint, if you want to talk about longevity in your sport, I think these things aren't negotiable that at least two to three times a week you've got to be doing something it doesn't have to be fancy it can be fast drop squats it can be a heavy squat or like a, a correct me if i'm wrong would a heavy deadlift load probably probably load the spine similar yeah exactly yeah and you, exactly. And you want to do that so, bilaterally so you got you keep right yeah don't do a single leg remaining deadlift to a bilateral right. deadlift um hex bar deadlift is going to be a great way to do that right exactly so you don't have to worry about balance problems right this is something you just load it up really heavy and it you don't do three sets of 10 my students make fun of me for kind of trying to get them off the like three sets of 10 for everything lower reps with higher weight or higher intensity is what really creates this team not that there's anything wrong with three sets of 10 but that is just a different stimulus that we're not discussing right now uh it has its place but it's it's funny how it's mirroring this and there's so many things like if you're a runner whether you're mile or especially if you're ultra marathoner these are things you should do you should have a heavier weight you should be moving a little quicker because you're not getting that on your run and if you want to talk about health and your overall function these are the things that you're missing that you need to make sure you have in addition to nutrition sleep and all those other components to keeping some kind of balance in a very unbalanced sport. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's important though, for the ultra runner in particular to think about, and this also goes for the, any sort of elite athlete. So if you're, if you're a high school athlete, who's, uh, who's a really good cross country runner and you're running relatively high volume for as a high school runner, don't forget you're also growing a lot at the same time. You're still going through a lot of physical maturation. So you have to consider that from your overall, uh, energy demands. Um, and when you look at the college runner, but then also for the ultra runner, these are people that are they're they're burning a lot of calories, so their overall total energy expenditure is very high. And as a result, you really want to focus in on what is your minimally effective dose 
In other words, you don't want to go to the weight room and spend a lot of time there. Your goal is to get in and get out as quickly as possible, make your program as efficient as possible. And so you're not spending a lot of time doing other activities because when you're doing other activities, you're burning more calories and that could potentially be digging a bigger hole for you. And so, you know, again, I think if you're thinking about, I mean, let's just say like your three sets of 10 example, it is much better to do one set of 10 three times per day rather than three sets of 10 all in one workout. And the reason for that, again, is because you start to lose sensitivity of the bone the more reps that you do. With that said, you don't, as a runner, you're not going to have the ability to do one set of 10 three set three times per day. So the thing to do is go in and make that one set count, um, make it very heavy, of course, do an appropriate warm up, and then get out of there and don't mess around. Um, when it comes to lifts, you want to do some compound lifts, lifts, and I and I think that doing some sort of you know, a lot of runners have very tight hamstrings, so doing like a like a trap bar deadlift, I think, is a great exercise um, to do. Um, doing like a, a some sort of weighted back squat, I think, is another good alternative to that. But if if I had to like probably. I had to put together like a minimally effective dose for an athlete, for an ultra runner. I would say get into the, uh, you know, go in there and do some sort of heavy calf raises on a Smith machine. And the reason why you want to do it on a Smith machine is because then you don't have to worry about balancing and you can, you can put more weight on yourself. And so you've got this weight on you, you've got a, you're loading your axial spine. So you've got that part taken care of. And again, you want to be doing uh, maybe not initially, but eventually you want to get to yourself. You're down to like maybe doing three sets of eight repetitions where it's, it's pretty heavy and you have a hard time finishing that last repetition. Then doing some sort of like trap bar deadlift and then also doing some sort of plyometric where you're doing, you're working on maximal jump height um, and then get out of there. There's no need to do anymore. And if you have a, a past injury history that's significant, maybe you need to do another exercise that's a good maintenance exercise. So let's say you, like, you've got a past injury history of, of patellofemoral pain. Maybe it's time to do some quadricep exercises like on the knee extension machine and then get out of there. But I would really encourage people not to spend a lot of time in the weight room. Um, I, I think that um, we're not, you know, ultra runners and runners in, in general are not weightlifters. And so it, the, the, you know, the goal there is to do some lifting that's going to support your overall musculoskeletal health, but also improve your overall performance. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, I think the other part of it too, that's really important. This is one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get a lot of questions uh, coming my way via email or, or Instagram or what have you is, look, I've got low bone density and I have red ass and we haven't really used that term at all yet today, which is relative energy deficiency sport. And what that is, is that is a, a, um, a prolonged state of low energy availability, so I, I, I'm dealing with some red S issues. I've got low bone density. What are some ply, what's a plyometric program that I can do? And it, it always comes back to your physiology is, is if your physiology cannot support your bones ability to adapt to the loads that you're experiencing, all you're going to do is break down more bone. And so it's really important to make sure that first and foremost, that you're hitting those energy demands of your activity, then figure out how to build your bone mass back up with some sort of exercise. And I think this probably is, is maybe a good way to think about it is you can't deal with exercising too much by exercising even more. You need to first deal with meeting your energy demands of your sport. So there's a priority list here of going, just because I have this pathology doesn't mean I can exercise my way out of it. There is a priority list of going, okay, the problem, maybe the reason I got here was a low energy low energy deficiency. So that has to be addressed first. I cannot adapt to strength training and plyometrics if that is addressed first. So that's priority one. 
Priority two is, okay, once I've addressed that and I've also addressed maybe some training errors, I could then I can start thinking about strength and stuff. But I'm going to quote Jack Daniels on this, who's a coach from uh, Stanford from and several other places that always said, only train the as much as you need. You never want to do more than is necessary because you want to just do what you need to to get the stimulus. And like you said, then get out. And so it's the same thing for the gym is that runners are not weight are not weightlifters. You know, so I personally don't go to the gym. I have my poor wife and the delivery guys had to deliver two uh, hundred pound kettlebells uh, to my place. And they're great. I got them on sale because people were like, oh, I don't want this in the COVID era. But I just mess with those a couple times a week. And it doesn't it takes me maybe 10, 15 minutes max and it's done because that's really kind of as much you need. You want to do the minimum necessary to get the max stimulus without having to overdo it. And as you said, more exercise isn't better. It's being strategic with getting the most you can out of as little as possible so you can recover and you don't go back into those same issues of energy deficiency and just continue that cycle. Exactly. That makes sense. So we've heard a couple of things. It sounds like there are ways to treat this, but you got to make sure you treat the source, which a lot of times for not everyone, but a lot of people, a priority thing is, are you eating enough? Once you've gotten that, so eating enough calories, recognizing that your body essentially goes numb to excessive stimulus, like ultra marathon, like run, running, stuff like that. Once you've addressed those issues, it would be helpful, be it a master's runner or younger runner, ultra marathon or any runner really, to start thinking about doing some faster strength plyometric stuff, but less is more, right? Three sets of 10, what if 20, whatever, it's get in and get out, right? Higher load, less reps, less sets, get the stimulus you need and move on. The minimum dosage for some of the research I've seen is like one to two times a week is at least, and you can get quite a bit out of that, especially for your master's runners. I would, I have to ask you on this part because given we do, given especially my background, do you think footwear has any place to play into this? Or is that something that's kind of one of those factors where we used to focus on that a lot and now it's say, you know what, you got to wear what's comfortable for you or is there any stuff? And the reason I ask this is because footwear, especially in the ultra marathoning world has changed so much in the last couple of years from we us going through a very high, like traditional, very minimalist, and now we're in these extreme maximalist shoes that as we've kind of seen aren't necessarily as protective. A lot of Christine Pollard's work out at Oregon State showed, yeah, we actually still have some high loading internally. Maybe if you're landing on the force plate, not necessarily as much, but internally, what piece do you think footwear has to play in this, if any? Yeah, I mean, yeah, this, I mean, footwear is such a fascinating topic and yeah uh, I, I mean i love i love talking about it i, I think too it, it's one of the weird things that um it seems to be one of the more polarizing topics and uh i don't always understand why that why that is um and i, I don't know for me i i see shoes as being basically like an adjunct um or just like anything else like it, it's some some way to to modify loading on someone so you know, I think let's let's take a step back and take a, and think about bone stress injuries um, first, and like you know whether or not biomechanics actually play a role. So a, a really good rule of thumb is the further you get away from the ground, the less biomechanics matters when it comes to bone stress injury. So if you have a femoral bone stress injury, if you have a sacral bone stress injury or a lumbar uh, spine bone stress injury. Um, I can almost 100% assure you that your running biomechanics do not did not factor into you getting that injury. And the reason for that is that those bone sites 
are very uh, trabecularly rich bone sites. And trabecular bone is a spongy bone. That's a very kind of metabolically active and demanding type of bone. And so when you're restricting your calories or you're, you're burning more calories than you're consuming, you that's the first place that um, you start to see this. And so sometimes I'll see runners who will go get a bone density examination and they'll come in. They'll be like, well, look, I have low bone density in my lumbar spine, but my femur looks pretty good. But, I'm, but it actually starts in your lumbar spine. That's when you start losing your bone density when you're in a this this low energy availability state for a long period of time, which is this, this red S that we're starting to hear more and more about. And clinicians should be really familiar with how to, how to screen for that. Um, and we can, we can come back to that um, later, but you know, back to your question as far as shoes go. So the closer you get to the ground, the more your running biomechanics are probably going to matter. That doesn't mean that this, that red S is, is, is not an issue when we talk about distal bone stress injuries. It certainly is, but we, we still need to take a good look at our runner's biomechanics mechanics when it comes to foot and ankle and, and lower leg bone stress injuries. So when, when we look at those, I think it's worth first thinking about well, what, what creates extra load on a bone. And there's, this is something, this is an area that's, that, that's really changed a lot in the last five years. Uh, we used to think that impact forces really made a big difference in bone stress injuries. Um, but that's not really what we see. And what it really is, the biggest contributor, not your impact forces, but the muscle that is attached to the bone, and that contributes the most. So when we look at tibial bone force, which is in our lab, we model tibial bone force. And you know, when you're running along at, let's say, a seven and a half minute mile pace, um, you're, the, the actual tibial compressive force ends up being around nine body weights. And I think most of us have heard that the ground reaction force when we run is about two and a half times our body weight. So we've got nine body weights of tibial bone force, but we've got two and a half body weights of ground reaction force, where's that extra six and a half body weights coming from? And it's coming from the muscle that attaches to your tibia, which is going to be your plantar flexors, so your soleus and your gastrocnemius musculature. And so whatever increases your plantar flexor muscle force is going to be the easiest thing to manipulate when it comes to how we can control tibial bone forces. And so if you take a step back and then take a look at shoes, what type of shoe designs increase tibial bone force? And the other way to, probably the better way to ask that question is what shoe designs increase plantar flexor muscle force? And I think we all kind of know the answer to that, and that's going to be minimalist type shoes. So a shoe that has a zero drop to it um, is going to really increase our plantar flexor demands. And and if you've ever tried making that move to a minimalist shoe or a zero drop shoe, you you already know the answer to this, and that's because you probably experienced a lot of extra plantar flexor soreness, and that's because you're asking a lot more of your plantar flexors. Also, different types of running really and really contribute to high plantar flexor um, forces, and that would be running uphill a lot, which obviously ultra runners do a lot of that, um, and also running fast. So uh, when you start to run faster, one of your biggest contributors to faster running um, are your plantar flexors. You start to push off a lot harder. Um, and so th- those things are going to really uh, contribute a lot to extra tibial uh, bone forces. Uh, when we look at the metatarsals, um, when you when you think about um, and and you know I'll pull out a pen here. I don't know if this is a video podcast or it's all audio, but when, it's when, both. So for for those of those people listening on Spotify, we'll try to describe what's uh, what's happening. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you, I'm going to hold going, up yeah. this this pen here and yeah. imagine this is your this is one of your metatarsals, and so if you're when you're when you push off, this is the ball of your foot. When you push off, 
it's going, you're going to get this bending force on your metatarsal. So this is a, you know, pretend like your metatarsal is perfectly horizontal with the ground. And if you're in a high drop shoe, what's happened there is now your, now your foot, your metatarsal is more vertical. And as a result, you've actually shortened the bone up quite a bit. And so your bending force is a lot less. And you can even try this by just taking a pen and doing this. And you can see that more of the force is going to be delivered axially or along the shaft of the your uh, your metatarsal, so it stiffens it up. So a low drop shoe actually increases metatarsal bone stresses considerably. And we know that when you go into a shoe that has a, even a moderate drop, so like say five to seven millimeters of a drop, as <laughs> Matt has all behind him there, um, we know yeah. that the metatarsal bending forces um, come down considerably. And so if you've had a, um, a metatarsal bone stress injury in the past, that might be something really very important for you to think about is that, uh, or a tibial bone stress injury, is you really, really want to think about um, controlling those plantar flexor forces. Um, and one of the easiest ways to do that is with a higher, uh, with a higher drop shoe. Now, if you're trail running, it, uh, a high drop shoe doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense because when you start to run downhill, your, your ankle becomes is less stable. And so that's one of the reasons why when you, when you see trail running shoes, they tend to be their drop tends to be much more in the moderate range. They tend to be, you know, this five to five to eight millimeters of, of drop because you're not pitched forward so much when you're running downhill where you feel unstable. But at the same time, when you're, when you're running uphill, it's a little bit easier on your plantar flexors. And so they tend to be a much more moderate um, level of a shoe. Um, the other type of shoe design that, that really will, if you really want to reduce your plantar flexor forces, is a shoe that has some sort of a rocker sole to it, which is, <laughs> which is what you're holding up there. And I think that, so Hoka is a good example of that, but I think that probably the shoe that I end up putting runners in a lot, particularly even run, uh, road runners, is uh, the North, one of the North Face Vective um, shoes. Yes, it, yeah. It has a really nice rocker to it. And what that rocker does is it, it moves, going back to this, this metatarsal, if you will. So we, you know, of course we tend to toe off of, off of our second metatarsal head. What it does is that rocker moves that pivot point more proximal. So it shifts it back. And so it essentially shortens your metatarsal length up. The other thing that it does, and so of course then it's not going, your, your moment arm that's going to cause that bending torque on your metatarsal becomes less. The other thing that that rocker does is that it moves that pivot point closer to your ankle joint center. And then because of that, your demand on your plantar flexors reduces by about 15%. Now, if we go back to what I said earlier, that for every 1% that you reduce your plantar flexor forces or your load, which is going to load, reduce your load on your bone by about 1% as well, you're increasing the distance that you can run by a factor of six before you start accruing bone micro damage. So for every 1% that you're reducing your plantar flexor loads, you're reducing the load or the damage that you're going to accrue in your tibia by 6%. And so very small changes in plantar flexor forces result in very large reductions in the overall uh, bone damage that you might be accruing. And that's one of the reasons why doing something as simple as increasing your running cadence, for, for instance, is while it doesn't reduce your load per step by a whole bunch, it reduces the amount of damage that you're accruing. There's a big difference between biomechanical load and actual tissue damage. And so a 10% reduction in load per step increases the number of of, uh, steps that you can take before you start getting um, breakdown of bone or tendon by almost 50%. So we see this really, this exponential effect that's that's occurring there. And the same thing happens with shoes 
um, as well. So if you're if you're looking to if you've had a metatarsal bone stress injury or you've had a tibial bone stress injury and perhaps you got that as a as a competitive runner, you you might be sitting there thinking, oh wait a minute, now I, I kind of this is kind of starting to make sense, and hopefully it is that a lot of times we see those injuries when people start running and racing flats a lot or start making that transition to track spikes um, because again those shoes tend to have very little drop. Uh, to them, there's been some really neat work done by a colleague of mine. Is we've written a couple of papers together now. Brent Edwards is at University of Calgary, and and um, he's looked at different shoe designs and and how that increases the probability of sustaining a, a tibial bone stress injury or a metatarsal bone stress injury. So if I had to, if I had an athlete who came in who had had a history of metatarsal bone stress injuries or tibial bone stress injury. The, the shoe that I would probably recommend them to go into is, some, is a shoe that probably has some sort of a rocker sole um, to them. I would definitely try to steer them away from a, um, a zero drop shoe um, because, again, that's going to really increase loads in that, in that region. So you might be saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, if I, if I just spend a lot of time and I transition into the zero drop shoe, I'll be able to adapt. And you're, you're right, partially, and that's that your muscles will adapt quite well, your tendons will adapt as well. But remember, bone doesn't adapt as quickly, um, and there's also probably a ceiling on how much your bones can adapt as, like once you get it out, outside of your teenage years. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm not saying that minimal shoes are necessarily a, you know, I would never say that like, this is a bad shoe and this is a good shoe, but I would say that there are some shoes that are probably better choices for some runners, uh, than others. Um, so um, do you mind if I challenge you on something? Go, go for it. So I hear you, right. And that makes sense that if you're having injuries in this area and the metatarsals in the lower, in this, in the tibia, that perhaps a minimalist shoe might not work best for you. I'm coming to this, by the way, that I think shoes are tools and each human being is going to find something that's completely different for them. And there's no such thing as a best shoe, even for each individual. It's just different tools for different opportunities. If we start switching people that, again, as you mentioned, this is assuming we've addressed all the other things we've talked about. A rocker shoe doesn't necessarily get rid of forces. It just changes them. And force isn't the right term for this right now. It changes the workload because while your the plantar flexors don't have to work as much, your knee, your hip, hamstrings, quads, that those areas have to work more. And you mentioned one of the things that creates a lot of tensile load on the bones is actually the muscle contraction. So while you're having to contract muscles less at the foot and ankle, you are having to do it more at the hip and femur. So are we just shifting loads for people when we still need to make sure this is kind of obvious, but like if there, it's the same concept of changing mileage or the exercise part, if they still have a energy like a deficit going to a rocker shoe, isn't going to solve this because you're just shifting load into a new area that now has an equal risk of some kind of bone stress injury. Is that true? Or am I missing something? Yeah. I mean, well, of course what you're saying is hundred percent accurate that we don't really, you know, as long as you don't change your running speed, or you don't change your your cadence. You're all you're doing is you're just moving load around. So whether you're put a heel drop in, or a heel lift in someone's shoe, or um, you know if you put a, someone in a high drop shoe, of course it's going to shift more loads up to the knee. Put them in a zero drop shoe, it's going to shift more loads down to the plantar flexors. Um, and yeah, I mean I think I think that that's you know pretty well established. Now do uh, higher. Uh, how much does that increase your um, like your knee loads if you go into a higher drop shoe? Uh, I would say it's not a one to one ratio. There, I would say that like one percent 
uh, loss of lower load at the foot and ankle doesn't necessarily mean a 1% gain up there. And that, of course, that's because we have moment arms and the moment arms are different when it comes to muscles. And, and, and so it's not quite as simple and straightforward as that. But with that said, we do know with a rocker sole shoe, a higher drop shoe, we do see some higher, uh, some higher knee loads um, as well. If you've never had a knee injury before, that's not a problem. You know, and I think right. that I think that works. I, I, I would say though too, I think it's really important for people to to run in the shoe that's most comfortable for them and that's going to fit well for them. And, and and for me, that's what I always start with. Now, when I'm having when I have an athlete who's coming back from an injury, we spend a lot of time thinking a lot about being very smarter with footwear because I think that that can really be a really important adjunct to improving one's ability to get back to running in a very seamless manner, and 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 hopefully not have any hiccups um, along the way. Um, but once we get past that, then I let them kind of go back to their, to their shoes. So I, I tend to be very agnostic. I think, I hope I'm, I hope I'm coming off as agnostic. I try to, right. I try to think about that when it comes to, to shoes. And I would agree. I look at them only as a, as a tool. Um, when we, when we look, um, more proximally, it, it's not, it's not always the, it's not the muscle forces that have been really, uh, thought to relate to bone, bone stress injuries proximally. It, it's much more. Apologize if I misinterpreted that. Yeah, Sorry. no, it's much more, yeah, yeah. more proximally. It's what, what causes the, those bones, bone stress injuries really, uh, tends to be much more of some sort of an, of an energy deficiency. Um, and we, we see that and then, and, and those data have been around for, for a while. And I think that we, we see that trabecular rich bone sites, these more proximal bone sites, which are your spongy bone sites, um, tend to be, uh, affected. Or if you have one of those bone stress injuries, you tend to have more indicators that you, um, are in a state of red S or the, the precursor to this before red S came around was female and the male athlete triad. Um, and so those triad risk factors, uh, tend to go up. Um, if, if you have those, those sorts of, of, of bone stress injuries. And if you've ever had one of those bone stress injuries, more so than a metatarsal bone stress injury, it's really important. You don't dismiss that because that is, uh, that that's typically going to be that you just haven't really been, just haven't really been consuming enough. What I'm hearing is priority wise in terms of going, yes, shoes, may change where forces happen but if if things are happening up higher i think the priority is obviously going to be energy consumption and making sure moderate moderate energy consumption with appropriate training and making sure those are balanced we are not on our priority list as concerned of okay yeah the, if you put on a really rockered shoe i am not worried now about shifting a stress fracture or a fracture from my metatarsals now up to my femoral neck that's not how this is going to work it's not that straightforward it's more of like there again. Yeah, there's some more important things to think about here. Yeah, and, and and I think it's really important too to think about injuries, not just bone stress injuries, but any injury and what we call a, a, some sort of a causal framework. And that is that these injuries are multifactorial, and that when you change one variable, it changes other things. And it's not just like, well, I got these shoes and I got this injury. And so, you know, you can see people continuing to fall for that error of like trying to put the blame on one thing. And it really isn't like that. And so the, the most recent example are like the, the super shoes. So there's an editorialist in British Journal of Sports Medicine recently that said, hey, like we're starting to see more uh, midfoot um, bone stress injuries. And, navicular, and navicular, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. With, with people who are running in, in, uh, in super shoes. And I would be like, and actually a couple of my colleagues and I, we've kind of kicked around the idea of writing a counter editorial to this because I, I think we need to just, just tap the brakes a little bit because 
Um, let, let's take a look at who is more likely to run in a super shoe. And we see that they tend to be faster runners who are going to get more bone stress injuries, more bone damage because of that. They're going to be one of the things that we do know with super shoes is that um, we kind of, both, both anecdotally and also in some studies that are, are going to be coming out soon, we see less muscle soreness. And if you've, if you've ever run in them, and, and I know runner, a lot of runners who, who have, I, I haven't, um, that they, they, report, <laughs> they report that they can um, rec- they recover quicker and that they can turn around and run more, higher, more sessions in a week at a higher intensity if they're training in these types of shoes. And so, again, we know that um, higher, run, higher running speeds increases our likelihood of, uh, of uh, accumulating bone microdamage. And um, then the other thing, too, is if you're the type of runner who is looking for that 1% that you're going to be running, you're going to be actually training in a shoe that was originally designed to be done as used only in a race, um, you're also probably that type of runner who's looking for other places where you might be looking to gleam a little bit more out of yourself. And that perhaps might be that you're, you're um, quote unquote, eating a little clean or you're working on eating cleaner. And we see that that um, increases, the athletes have a tendency to eat, quote unquote, try to eat cleaner when the closer they get to a race. Um, and they also tend to tighten up other things too um, and tend to do more speed work as they're leading up to a race. So that's, and they tend to run more in these shoes. So I think that, I think that when we see a shoe and we see someone saying, well, if you run in that type, if you run in this bulky maximal shoe, you're going to get more midfoot injuries. I would be like, well, it, it, it's probably a lot more complicated than that. And, and I think it's important for us um, to take a long, hard look at um, all the different factors. And so when we design studies, it's important for us to account for all these different things. It's important when we're looking at bone stress injuries that we don't just say, who ran in this shoe and who didn't? Who got bone stress injuries and who didn't? We should also be collecting other metrics such as um, the triad questionnaire that looks at different risk factors like things like, you know, um, have you been diagnosed with low bone density? Have you had a bone stress injury in the past? And how many of those have you had? And how many were high risk bone stress injuries? Um, all these different factors and, you know, uh, so that we can, you can control for those confounders that are really important when it comes to determining, you know, is there actually a, um, some sort of cause that's occurring here? And we always have to be careful about that when we're thinking about these kind of these prospective designs. So I think from this point on, when my students ask me a question, I'm not going to say it depends anymore. I'm just going to say it's multifactorial just to redirect them for a second until they get tired of that. But I think that's really true. And I want for all of our listeners to bring to the fact that Rich has used the term adjunct quite a bit is that, and I, I kind of teased at this, even knowing the answer is that, yeah, we can try to pin things on footwear. We can try to pin things on running form. We can try to pin it on this and that, but there are some priorities of going back to the basis going, are you f- supporting your physiology with these things? And when you start focusing on these extraneous kind of farther down the road variables, you might be missing the picture, which is when in research, which I am learning, Rich is the expert on, and I am being in a PhD program, trying to finish my PhD and learning, did I choose the right variables? <laughs> is these the right things to focus? Just, just panic, I guess, is apparently normal, even though I'm freaking out as it gets to the end of this thing. You have to ask yourself, are you focusing on the right things? And I think shoes have a place and they have some very big complexity, especially I, 
might have to get your address and get you in a pair of the super shoes if you haven't haven't tried a pair. So yeah, I have to change that. I haven't run in them yet, but um, uh, no, it's fine. We might have to change that, yeah. but there's still a lot we don't know in terms of what's actually happening. Are we reducing forces? Why are people less sore? There's some very good theories, some very some good good researchers that are working on this right now to try to figure this out, but we don't know yet. And as as we start seeing those type of shoes go on to trail and ultra marathon. We don't necessarily know yet, but again, we do know from basic physiology, you do have to address the basic things. Are you eating enough? Are you balancing your training well enough that your body can actually recover from it, which means appropriate food, you know, calories, appropriate sleep, making sure you're recovering appropriately. And then once you've done that going, are you actually balancing your body in a way, understanding that your body doesn't adapt the way you might think it does, and that with excess uh, continuous loads, your body stops responding after a fairly short period? Like I, I can't remember if I heard, learned, heard this from you or where I learned this from, but it was like you only really get benefit, like bone benefit from a run like for a th- the first few minutes and that's it. Then you lose it, right? So it's, okay, once you've gotten all these factors in line – then you need to start thinking about, hey, can you do a couple like higher intensity jumps or maybe some higher weight a couple times a week minimum? Once you've checked off all those variables, then you can start thinking about footwear. Then you can start thinking about these other extraneous things. But you've got to go back to the basics first. And instead of, instead of saying it depends, I'll just say it's multifactorial. You've got to make sure you focus <laughs> on the right variables first before you get anywhere else yeah is that a pretty good yeah, summary yeah, so yeah, far yeah yeah I, I think so definitely i think i think anytime that we're you're looking at an injury and trying to understand why that's occurring um and of course you have to do that somewhat to come up with a, a reasonable some sort of intervention um or risk mitigation program some sort of prevention program if you will um you know i, I don't know you, you really need to kind of think about the athlete as a whole and, and, and i think that's really important and that's what like these you know thinking about things more in these causal frameworks or it's like connecting variables rather than saying well i've got this person they've got all these risk factors and then you know and out the other end spits a bone stress injury it's like well how does one affect the other and so you know a good example of this would be let's just kind of hypothetically think about a study let's say you've got uh you you want to so you've listened to this podcast or maybe you've read some papers and you, you're like okay well strength training is what I want to be doing with athletes and I, I'm going to go into a high school maybe you're a clinician you're like I'm going to go into high school and I'm going to develop it, this bone this bone loading program for my high school athletes I'm going to have them lift very heavy and get them uh, doing this and then they're going to you know keep doing their regular running program and and I'm going to uh, reduce everybody's risk of getting a bone stress injury. You have to be a little bit careful here too because you have to think about who's on the receiving end of this and ask the athlete, well, tell me about what you think if I have you lift very heavy. What do you think about lifting heavy? And they might tell you a couple of different things. The, the one thing they might tell you is they might say, well, look, I'm really worried about lifting heavy because I'm worried about it affecting my ability to run a lot and run and do my workouts you know, really well. And that comes back to that issue of like it's really important to make sure that you're planning your program with minimal the minimal effective dose so now if you if you're carrying a lot of fatigue into your next run that usually means you have too much volume but more importantly if you ask any runner uh who's maybe not up uh who hasn't hasn't read some some different articles about weightlifting and stuff like that if you say i'm gonna have you lift a lot of heavy weights what are they going to be worried about they're probably going to be worried about gaining muscle mass they're going to be worried about bulking up and so if you go into a high school cross-country program you say i'm gonna have everybody here lift really heavy 
Um, you're going to have some athletes who are going to be into that. They're going to be, okay, this is cool. And you have other athletes who are going to be like, I'm really worried about bulking up. And they're either not going to do the exercises to the intensity that you're asking them to do it, or they're going to perhaps do some, some other, um, uh, some caloric, some extra caloric restriction to keep themselves, um, from, uh, from, 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 from bulking up, or they might not be consuming the extra calories that they need because now you've added up more exercise to their program. And there you've actually increased the risk of getting a bone stress energy because you added a very intensive, uh, muscle strengthening program, which as we know, uh, is also very energy intensive, just the same as running is. And so it, it's really important to kind of think about all those things and not say, if you don't strength train, you're going to get injured. It, it, it's, you really have to think about the athlete as a whole. How do they view the activity that you're doing? Um, how does it fit within um, the other risk factors? And, and how do these risk factors connect with one another? Because when you change one, it's going to have an effect downstream on, on other ones. And you need to account for all that, both in your, your program, but also in any sort of education that you might be doing with your athletes. That was the most intense example of <laughs> it depends or it's multifactorial I think I've ever heard. This, I have to make fun of Rich for this as, as, as someone who's, because you, you finished your PhD with uh, Irene Davis in yeah, 2011, 2011 yeah. right? This this is the off topic as someone who is in this realm listening going, oh, this is what an experienced researcher sounds like when they have going, I've gotten all these variables as opposed to the newer researchers going, oh, I should have <laughs> thought about that. So this is great. Well, Rich, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time on this and talking about not only bone stress injuries, but I think what I'm getting from this is understanding the athlete, whether that's you that you're trying to figure out what's going on with you or if you're working with an athlete going, make sure you look at the whole picture and try not to get um, like cordoned off into one section. It's really an entire, it's a puzzle piece. Each person's totally different. Just like we talk about each person might need a completely different shoe. We all have different needs. There are some basic physiological principles that you do have to pay attention to, especially when it comes to bone stress injuries, but make sure you're looking at the whole individual and not just trying to pin out one little thing. So we really appreciate that. I do want to give Rich a shout out. If you have not followed him on social media, if you're not following the Montana Run Lab, you definitely should because they're always dropping stuff. And I hear if you haven't already, correct me if I'm wrong, you have a course coming up that anybody who <laughs> yeah, wants to do. learn more can. Uh, yeah, get we more do. From we you. do have a we have an online course uh, coming up soon, and we have a we're going to be in New York City. I'm going to be teaching in New York City at the end of May. Um, so we're just kind of working on ironing out those details but uh yeah i, I do some on like in-person courses but most i'm trying to get a lot of this online and uh so people can access it whenever they want Got it so yeah if you go to university of montana running lab it's great website very well done i will say there's online courses right there if you have not taken it if there's something you're interested in, i would highly encourage it is there any other social media or online places you would suggest that people can find you to be able to either ask questions or learn more no i think that's that's the best place to go so you can if you want if you have some specific questions you're welcome to email me at uh, rich.willy w-i-l-l-y at umontana.edu and uh, make, make sure you mention this podcast and I'll, I'll get back to you awesome rich thank you we really appreciate your time and again listeners you can always find us in a variety of places be it on instagram spotify youtube all the usual classic places bach as always does a wonderful job of keeping up linkedin so that's another great place you can find us and as always if you have questions please let us know at drstrunning at gmail.com we will have a lot of cool stuff coming up rich is not the only one rich i'm probably gonna have to bug you to come back on some at some point because i've had a lot of fun i hope you've had just as much and we really appreciate your time yeah thanks a lot it's been great to be here so thanks for the invitation it's uh it's a lot.